you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation, I know, is one of those books that is challenging to enter into lightly. And the passage of Scripture that we're going to encounter this morning introduces us, gives us a clear picture of Jesus Christ at the end of days as we know them. Isaac Watts was arguably the most prolific hymn writer of his day. Now, he wrote a lot of hymns. Maybe you know, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. No, I don't know that one. Maybe you know when I survey the wondrous cross. You say, eh, maybe a little more familiar, but I don't know that one. Maybe you know this one then, joy to the world. Over the last month plus, we have certainly participated in some Christmas caroling. And sung over and again is joy to the world, predominantly at Christmas time. Something I found of note. It's a little bit of a side note, but Watts grew up in a world where the music in every single worship service consisted only of singing Bible psalms and singing only Bible scripture. Sounds exhilarating, I'm sure. About as exhilarating as what we just took part in. That's what he found. In fact, he thought it was very monotonous. Said there's a lack of joy and emotion among all the congregants. He said this. Now, this sounds a little dated, but he said this to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. What he was saying is, when I watch people sing these monotonous psalms and scriptures, it makes me wonder whether they know Jesus at all. And he did something. It was audacious. It was out of the box. It was borderline crazy. He wrote new music. How foolish and silly of him. He stepped out and wrote new music, and he put words to paper, and he wrote Joy to the World. When he wrote Joy to the World, he was inspired by the 98th Psalm and the fourth verse where we read this, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth, make a loud noise, rejoice, sing praise. And he, inspired by that verse, pinned those words to joy to the world. Now, I won't belabor the point and not make it a point of argument, but many believe the song, Joy to the World, is not actually a Christmas carol, but is written about Jesus and the second coming. Listen to the verse, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Verse 3 talks about sins and sorrows being no more. It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, if you've lived in our world for more than two minutes, that does not sound like the world in which we live. He really kind of hits on it in the final verse where we read, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. We know that song because we sing it at Christmas time. Whether it's first or second coming, I would say to you, we cannot encounter the Jesus in the manger without longing for the Jesus of the second coming. 
in his first coming. We know as we've studied it, he came in the weakness of infancy. He arrived on scene to be the suffering servant for all those who were hopelessly lost. In his second coming, he's going to come as the sovereign king. In fact, as we'll establish in a moment, king of kings and lord of lords. In his first coming, he came in the form of an infant child. We even see him helpless as he's put outside of the inn and into the manger. But the next time he comes, he will be unveiled. Everyone will know him for who he truly is. If you'll note here in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, we're going to meet Jesus of the second coming. John's writing. He has a vision. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, and I saw heaven opened. And behold, look, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is, in a way, the antithesis of Jesus as we studied him at the first coming. The Jesus of the Christmas story, but it is the same Jesus. The reality is, since the fall of man all the way back in the book of Genesis, the birth of Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the most anticipated event. There can be no doubt. Even though the average Christian knows more about the Christmas story or the first coming of Christ, the second coming is actually the focus of more scripture. I always find Bible statistics to be somewhat helpful. Here are some. The second coming of Christ and his reign on earth is in at least 17 Old Testament books. That's prophesying. Jesus Christ referred to his second coming in prophecy 21 times. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament mention the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, taking the scripture as a whole for every one Bible verse that references the first coming of Jesus Christ, there are eight verses that reference the second coming of Jesus Christ. So even as you encounter the world at large, people are more familiar with the Christmas story, as it were, than they are the second coming. And I imagine that makes some sense. One has occurred and one is yet to happen. It can shape our view of life. It can shape our emotional state. It can shape our mental state if we re-encounter Jesus Christ of the second coming. Note this with me in verse 11. Of Jesus, he is called faithful and true. Now, there are a lot of names written of Jesus all throughout Scripture. In fact, in here we see that he has a name which no one but he knows. We see that he is called faithful and true, and we note that he is called the Word of God. 
But it is important for John in this moment, as the Holy Spirit inspires him to tell us he is called faithful and true. We are being directed in this moment when the clouds part and the white horse comes through to see that he is named faithful and true. Why is that of note for us? One commentator was illustrating in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He was telling a story of a lady who was on her deathbed. On her deathbed, she was sharing the certainty of eternal life with everyone who would come to visit her. Everyone who came to visit her, pay their goodbyes or to let them know she was in their thoughts, she would tell them how sure she was of eternity with Jesus in heaven. One day, an unconverted man came to where she was, and in his heart, he thought, I should warn her against such dogmatism. No one can know as certain and sure as she is telling everyone about her security in heaven. I love how she answered him. She said to him, if I should awake in eternity and find myself among the lost, the Lord would lose more than I would. Now, that's an audacious statement. The man asked her, how can you say the Lord would lose more than you would? She responded, while I might lose my soul, he would lose his good name. Think about that for a second. If for even one moment the Lord was unfaithful or untruthful, he's lost everything. Because the Bible speaks of his promises The Bible speaks of his second coming. Is it any wonder that at this moment in time, John wants us to see his name as faithful and true? In fact, he's saying effectively, I saw heaven opening and the sovereign Lord descending just as he promised. He has kept his word. He is faithful and true. Whether you and I would like to admit it or not, certainly not publicly, perhaps it is possible that pervasive in our thoughts and in our hearts, doubt creeps in. We take a look at the world around us and we are compelled to wonder if what we are doing is actually the right thing. If what we adhere to is actually, when it's all said and done, the truth. If what we are trying to invest our lives in actually has any merit to it, and John wants for us to see in this moment, he will keep his word. His name is faithful and true. He promised he would come the first time, and he did. He's promising he will come the second time, and he will. It's his very name. He's a keeper of his promises. Note what else is said of him in verse 11. He judges and makes war. This view of Jesus that we're about to encounter makes people uncomfortable. Because we don't like to imagine Jesus like he's depicted here. He comes to judge and to make war. Note that he is depicted, he's seen by John as riding on a white horse. Now, everybody who would have read this in John's day would have immediately put together that the white horse is clearly symbolic of a victorious general or an emperor. They would have been reading this in the days of the Roman Empire. They would have done that math very quickly. It was depicting victorious emperor conquering general. 
Now, I want to pause for just a second and say, while I do think the white horse is symbolic of his victory and of his rule, I actually believe that he will literally ride a white horse, that he will rule, that he will reign, that he will set down on the Mount of Olives. And the last part of verse 11 says, he doth judge and make war. And we don't have time to build it all out, but this is reference to the battle of Armageddon. I like how one pastor said it. He said, this time when Jesus comes, he not only is bringing a choir, he's also bringing an army. This is a clear contrast between the first and the second Jesus that we meet within Scripture. He is arriving on the scene to judge and to make war. He arrives with his army. Who in the world is enlisted in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a depiction of his church. In fact, this harkens back to what Jude wrote. And what Jude wrote harkens back to one of the oldest prophecies about Jesus. It was made by Enoch. Jude writes of Enoch this, and Enoch also. The seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. And to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Think for just a minute. As you and I take a look at the world in which we live. An ever increasing toxicity surrounds us. We look at the world and we see an explosion of what we would consider violence and lewdness and wickedness and sin. And we are left to imagine as doubt can creep in, will there ever be any consequences? And his name, which is called faithful and true, will arrive on the scene to judge and make war and set things right. Not only does White say he's righteous and pure, but he's authoritative, he's vindicated. It's all through the book of Revelation. In fact, back in chapter 6 and verse 2, the rider on the white horse comes out conquering. The son of man in chapter 14, seated on a white cloud with a crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. At the final judgment in chapter 20, the great white throne, the rider here is depicted as righteous and authoritative. And note something about his eyes. John, as he looks, says, Behold, a white horse. He that's riding on him is called faithful and true. And he says he's coming to judge and make war. And his eyes are like flames of fire. Now again, nothing in the Bible is incidental. Nothing in there is just thrown in for our effect. There's something that is being communicated here. Now again, let's think of the contrast between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. One said this, those eyes that once reflected tenderness and joy as he cradled a child in his arms. Those eyes that reflected compassion when he encountered the distress. Those eyes that communicated sadness toward a denying disciple near a courtyard fire. Those eyes that communicated forgiveness Those eyes that wept over Jerusalem, those eyes that wept at the graveside of his friend, now flash with the fire of holy judgment. 
What is being communicated when we read that his eyes were like flames of fire? We would probably be compelled to try to lie if we didn't have an eyewitness account. You perhaps can remember having a child or being a child, and if nobody was there to witness it, you might be compelled to try to lie. I imagine that when the moment of judgment comes, our world in their state of rebellion will try to shout out, you have no right to judge me. You weren't there. You have no right to judge me. You don't know what was going on behind closed doors. You don't know what was happening in the dark. You can't see past my facade. You can't see behind my mask. And the fact is, he comes with omniscient vision. His eyes as a flame of fire are communicating to us that he's an eyewitness. He's omnipresent. All the information needed to make a right judgment, he already has. He has seen it all. The truth about Jesus Christ as we read it here causes us to tremble. Because it's communicating to us that everyone who is alive will give account to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every secret, he already knows it. Every person who's trying to slide by by looking the part, he sees behind the facade and he knows what's underneath the mask. Many people think their sinful deeds go unnoticed. But Christ, who is depicted here as the righteous judge, sees it all. He'll make all right, all that is wrong. He'll bring justice to a world full of cruelty. He'll make war on the enemies of God. He'll pour out all the fitting wrath upon all the nations. I don't like to see him like this. Well, there's one phrase further. He wears a vesture dipped in blood. This is depicting an awful scene. This is depicting that day of judgment, the battle of Armageddon, where literally the blood of his enemies is depicted as being splattered up against his garments quite literally. To the average person, one wrote, talk of God like this shocks and stuns them. They don't understand that the unbelieving world is called by the Apostle Paul the enemy of God. They've been deceived by the God of this world, that they are really okay. As one man told him recently, he said, I'm all good with the man upstairs. There's no big deal with God. He wouldn't hurt a fly. The truth of Scripture says otherwise, that he is storing up wrath until these days when he pours it out like an unstoppable tsunami. Our world would be utterly horrified of this view of Jesus Christ. But this is what compelled the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he was speaking to the Athenians and he said this, He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. This day when it arrives communicates the judgment of God, the outpouring of God's wrath on all sin. The Apostle Paul was begging the Athenians who were wrapped up in their education and wrapped up in the successes of their society to comprehend that they had to repent, that they are the enemy of God and they have to mediate peace because this day of judgment is coming. It leads me to ask you this simple question. Have you repented of your sins? Are you aware 
That you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, you are a child of wrath under this impending coming onslaught of the wrath of God. That you and I and all are sinners and that sin must be paid for. But the beauty of scripture is God loves us so much that he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, so that he could shed his blood and willingly pay that price of death for us. All we have to do is place our faith in Jesus for salvation, and this wrath goes away. The harshness of this message in truth is eased by the reality of the love of God. On his head, verse 12 says, were many crowns. Implied in the Greek there, those are diadems, those are royal crowns. He has come and he has conquered every other king. I like fighting sports. You say, hmm, wish you wouldn't say that. My kid heard you say that. I know, fighting sports, right? Like it's probably not good. It's a carnal thing. And I think to myself, you know, the Bible does say that God uses the simple and the foolish to do his work. And I'm evidence of that, okay? Evidence, a little carnality. I like, but I don't really like and revere the modern day stuff as much as what I grew up with in the 80s. I had the privilege of growing up when Mike Tyson was fighting. And you could go in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, to the Cap Center. It was the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. And they would put fights on the big screen in the cap center, and you would actually pay to go to the cap center to watch the fight. And they never lasted long, like a round or two. I mean, they were just over quick. But his sheer level of force and intimidation was, I like to see and to hear other people get hit. Not me. Other people get hit. I like it. I wish for once in my life I had that level or that air of intimidation where I just walked in and you thought, he might hit me. I won't, because I don't look or feel like that, but man, if I could have it once. One of the things that I like about heavyweight fighting was it spread out a bunch of divisions, across a bunch of divisions, and when a fighter would enter the ring, he would enter the ring, and oftentimes he would be draped, or someone would be carrying for him the belts of the heavyweight divisions, and what was being communicated when you walked into the ring with multiple belts on you was, I am the champ across these divisions. Doesn't matter what division you put me in, I'm the champ of those divisions. And when you see Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 with many crowns on his head, comprehend what he's saying. I rule all of them. I'm the champ in every division. I'm the champ across all the board. Nobody's in charge here but me. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Colossians chapter 1, here's what Paul wrote. For by him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He has on many crowns. He is the king and there is no other. Get this, no president, no election year. That doesn't, that's the greatest relief of all. No election year. Pastoring in the last couple of elections, 
I hate election years. Has such a chance and opportunity to divide the church and tear it up. And when he comes, just no more election years. It's over. No kings, no governments, no codes, no rules like that. No nation is autonomous. Think for just a second about what's being communicated. Everything that was created, visible or invisible, every throne, every dominion, every principality, every power was created by and for the glory of Jesus. He said to his disciples, and his name is faithful and true, all power in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. So when you take a look at the globe and you feel a sense of panic creep in, understand all authority that has been distributed has been given at the behest of Jesus Christ and is still completely under his dominion and his control. That's our confidence as Christians. Not only on his head were many crowns. In verse 13 we read, his name is called the word of God. See, this is strange. His name is called Faithful and True, and he has a name that nobody but him knows, and his name is called the Word of God. Why does John want us to see this? Man, this is important. In John 1.1, John introduces us to this same word, capital W, this logos. The Spirit of God tells us, John introduces us to him in this way, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why is he telling us this? Understand, the one who is coming to defeat his enemies and to reign is the same Logos that was born among us, of whom we beheld his glory in John 1.14, and as many as received him became the sons of God, John 1.12, the same Jesus that was there at creation and existed for eternity. The same Jesus who was born in the manger. The same Jesus who died on the cross. The same Jesus who was buried in the tomb. The same Jesus who ascended into heaven is the same Jesus that's on the white horse. It's the same Jesus. You say, I wish I could have met him. One day you will. It's the same Jesus. And the armies of verse 14 are the church of the living God. And John again does something intentional. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I know, he makes us see the clothes on the army. And he says of them, they're fine linen, white and clean. Fine linen, white and clean. Oh, one of my least favorite pastoral obligations is to do weddings. You say, don't say that publicly. It's just Listen, everyone should know it. Weddings are just, I get bossed around a lot in weddings. I have to be here, then I have to go there, then I have to say this, and I can't mess up. And to be honest, all the pressure's on me. It's not on the bride. It's not on, all they have to do is walk from the back door to the front. I gotta say everything. I have all the chance to sound dumb and to make mistakes. One thing that I will do is I will ask the bride, like, what color do you want me to wear? And they'll say, you know, a, a color. and I'm like, look, it, we're not going to go on a broad spectrum here. We're, we're probably talking black or blue. What do you want? Well, I have a tie picked out for you, Pastor. Oh, great. Can't wait to see it. But there is a rule, right, at weddings. What do you not wear at a wedding? White. 
Why? You can't upstage the bride. It's her day to be seen in white. Let this thought settle on your mind. You and I, Paul said, have no good thing in us. In our flesh, there's no good thing. In effect, on his day, when he's breaking through and, and we see him there, we get to wear white. That's laughable. That's audacious that I would wear white to him arriving on scene to rule and to judge. And then it hits you. It's not your righteousness that you're wearing. It's his anyway. The fact is, we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It's a message of triumph for the church. Now, be one of John's readers, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. You get this letter, and you are in a world that hates you. The church is persecuted. You know people who've literally been fed to lions in the Colosseum. You've heard stories, maybe have an actual family member who was lit on fire, and you're thinking to yourself, we're anything but triumphant. We're trampled, and we're outnumbered, and we're muddied and sullied and beat down. And John says, but hold on, the day is coming where you will be clothed like a winner, with fine linen, white and clean, not your righteousness, but his righteousness. It fulfills what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word of God. Note this, he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's written on his thigh. That stands out. Sometimes when I'm studying, those are questions I ask myself. Why is it written on his thigh? It's monogrammed on the robe. I don't understand. It's written on his thigh. Why? I agree with most who say the thigh was the place where a mounted warrior's sword would normally be strapped. The only weapon our Lord brings is the power of his word. It's written on his thigh. The two titles, they're King of Kings and Lord of Lords appear only one other time. It's in Revelation 17. They're actually flip-flopped. Those names are separately attributed to God in other parts of the Bible, but here they're both given to Jesus Christ. You cannot avoid within Scripture the declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God. And here in this moment, this declares there's no more supreme king than Christ. There is no Lord other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone is subordinate, and as the book of Ephesians says, everything is his footstool. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. In the end, it sounds so simplistic to say this, in the end, we win. It sounds fantastical. It is so far-fetched. To try to convey to somebody, so what you're telling me is a day is coming where the rapture occurs. Yep. And all those who are believers in Jesus, he's coming to get him. We'll be with him in the air. Yep. And on earth, there's a tribulation period. Exactly. And we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. What are we going to eat? I don't know. Those are the questions people like to ask. Are there hors d'oeuvres at the marriage supper of the Lamb? I don't know. And then at the end of the tribulation period, we find ourselves in Revelation 19, and behold, a white horse. 
Victorious general, conquering emperor coming. His name is faithful and true. As fantastical as it seems, it's going to happen. It is the truth of scripture. He is coming to judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Think about what's being communicated. On his head are many crowns. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Now let this sink in for just a second. Be amazed that even in this moment, he continues to lavish grace on us. Because we're there. And we're also riding white horses. And Jesus doesn't need us on his team. He can win it alone. He doesn't need us in his army. He can win it alone. But in an incredible act of grace, Jesus looks back at somebody like me and he says, let him dress like I'm dressed, even though he's got no righteousness. You know what? Let him also ride on a white horse, just like me, even though he brings nothing to the battle. And I get to ride with him in his great victory, and I do nothing, and I've done nothing, it continues to be the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, in my mind, and I can't back this with scripture, his horse is just bigger than my horse. And in my mind, though I can't back it with Bible, I feel like my horse is going to kind of be jumping around. I'm going to be trying to keep up just a little, like mine's just a little less than. But let it sink in. You don't merit this. You've done nothing to have this. And Jesus says, you're in my army. You're on my team. You dress in my righteousness. You ride this celestial horse. You come down with me here. You're going to reign with me here. You're going to stay with me for all of eternity. And big dumb me is there having sinned and been wrapped up in myself all of my life. And the grace of God says, it's okay because of Jesus. Because of the Christmas story, we get this Jesus. And the Jesus of the second coming shapes our emotional state because this world can beat us down. But in the end, we win. It helps our mental condition because we're so shaken to the core. We're so defeated and doubt-filled. And we arrive here and we say, hold on a second. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's ultimately in charge of everything. I will reign with him. I will be there for all of eternity, all because of his grace. It's stunning. It's amazing. I don't deserve it. I'm thankful for it. I'll say this. Repent if you don't know Jesus. And I'll say to you, if you're a believer and you're living your life for anything other than this moment, you're wasting it, squandering it. This is everything for us. We preach Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That second coming of Christ, when he arrives on the Mount of Olives, I'll be there. I'll probably be so far back in the army line with the horse that jumps around. And I know some of you are going to be there with me. We're going to be way in the back of the line, but we're going to be there. I don't merit it. When the new heaven and the new earth are created again and we're here for all eternity. I I can't fathom all of the intricate details, but I know I'm going to be there and he's going to be there. This same logos, this same word. There is so much theology layered through Revelation 19. It's life-changing. Would you please for just a moment bow your heads with me?
Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.